Welcome to Seeking God's Grace podcast, a place to share stories about life, faith and passion. My name is Grace and I am a sister of the Holy Family of Nazareth, or as some prefer to say, I'm a Catholic nun. I hope that this podcast will help you and me to find God in everyday life experiences and to understand God and yourself a little bit better. Let's talk and seek God together. Let's get this started. I'm sitting here in Convent Plumpton in the company of Father Robert Riedling. Who is Father Robert Riedling? That is one of the questions we will be um, trying to find the answer for. But before that, it's so great to have you here, Robert. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, who is Father Robert Riedling? Well, if you are a member of Paramata Diocese, you probably know Father Robert. If you ever belong to the parish in Blacktown on Glenmore Park, you probably already know who is Father Robert, or maybe there are many other reasons. We need to clarify a little bit of the history of uh, Father Robert's journey towards the priesthood. And if that's okay with you, I'm going to start with a couple of questions. Sure. Okay, so let's get started. First question, where were you born? I was born in Penrith, far western Sydney. Is that where you grew up? No, it wasn't, no. Um, I was born there, but uh, my parents moved to uh, Layla Park um, when I was about nine months old, which would have been early 1969, um, making me feel old. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, they moved there when I was just under a year old, and I grew up in Layla Park. Lila Park. Okay. So is that the place where you went to school? It was, yes. I went to um, a state school. Went to uh, My primary school was at um, a school called Linwood Park, just to make things confusing, which was just over the back fence of where where I grew up. And uh, technically that school was in Blacktown because the back fence of my parents' home formed a border Mm -hmm. between those two suburbs. And uh, so I did my primary schooling uh, at the state school uh, from kindergarten through to year six. And then uh, from year 7 to year 12, I went to another state school, Blacktown Boys High School, which obviously is also in Blacktown, and I went through to year 12 there, finishing up there in 1985. So from Blacktown, uh, from Penrith to Blacktown, hmm. now um, from Blacktown straight away to the seminary? Did you just enter seminary right away after school? No, certainly did not, no. Oh, that's a surprise. People always think, like, I wanted to be a priest ever since I was a young boy. Is that your story? Never even entered my mind, no. (laughs) (laughs) Mainly because I didn't grow up in a religious household at all. Um, My parents were sort of nominal Anglicans, I suppose, but they never really set foot inside a church, and religion was not really part of their life at all. Um, In fact, the last time they were in an Anglican church... um, was when they got married, which was back in 1957 in, in England. Uh, they came out to Australia in 1964 from the UK, like so many tens of thousands of others from Europe uh, in that sort of um, you know, 10, 20, 30 years mm-hmm. after the war. And um, anyway, so I didn't grow up in any religious household at all. I was never baptised, never set foot inside a church. And um, so certainly when I got to year 12, um, priesthood would never have been on my mind at all, nothing to do with religion at all. So basically, uh, when I finished school, I um, 
didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I was lucky enough to get into university. And uh, so I spent five years um, at Sydney University doing uh, study to do an arts degree, then I moved on to doing a teaching degree. Uh, and I finished that at the end of 1990. And so still, at that time, my only desire was to be a teacher. And, uh, and that uh, was frustrating because it was a, a glut of teachers when I finished university. It was very bad timing. <laughs> so okay. so um, I spent a few years just working in the, um, in the New South Wales public service, um, just doing sort of desk jobs sort of thing. And um, still at that time, I had no real interest in religion. Um, in fact, I've been put off religion a fair bit when I was at university because there was a very strong evangelical um, mm-hmm. groups at university wanting to you know, save my soul and all that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, most, well, mostly Protestant groups, and um, they were the ones who were... I mean, they, you've got to admire them for their, their zeal, zeal, I suppose, mm-hmm. and um, they were very keen to um, you know, um, have people come to their Bible meetings and things, but I found that sort of approach um, very off-putting. So by the time I finished university and was you know, working in that public service, um, I really had no great interest in religion, but something... Something happened, um, you know, uh, soon after I, um, sort of was, well, I was doing those jobs, I suppose, in the public service, I sort of had a realisation, sort of a mystical experience, I suppose you could call it, um, um, that, that God was real. And mm-hmm. uh, I suppose um, maybe I've been thinking about God without sort of putting too much uh, emphasis on God's reality, but um, that's how God works, you know, um, sort of very subtly, I suppose. And, um, and so really, uh, when I started teaching which was in 1995. I got a teaching job at last, um, in the, again, in the state system. Um, while I was teaching there, I was quite uh, interested in religion and was trying a few different um, sort of churches and um, ended up um, looking to the Catholic Church. Okay, let's stop here for a moment. Mm. So you are a teacher at the age of the... Uh, how old were you? I was, would have been uh, 26. 27, a young man who is into teaching, who is realizing, I'm not sure if um, the family life is for me. Have you had a good girlfriend? Yes, yes, I had a, a couple uh, of girlfriends. All right, so maybe <laughs> <laughs> the family life was still on the table. Yeah, sure. but, yeah, sure. but, but that is a very interesting moment, moment when you have actually professional career, hmm. when you have open options. Uh, at least few vocation, if we like to use this word, to choose from. Mm, mm. And when you are realizing there is someone bigger than I thought that actually exists in the life of spirituality, mm. in the decisions that I can or can't make about my life. And you started to explore. Was there anyone helping you in this exploring? Did you find effective way of exploring this mystical experience that you refer to? Um, well, I suppose when I was going to his other churches, um, I suppose, yes, I did have um, some people who were very supportive mm-hmm. of just helping me to find God. I think, you know, when I was... Um, the longest time I spent in a church before I joined the Catholic Church uh, would have been a Presbyterian church, uh, which was a, a very... Um, very basic sort of church. They used to meet in the school hall on mm-hmm. Sundays, obviously, and uh, it was um, very unstructured sort of worship. It was just like a, be like a youth band would play a couple of hymns and then there'd be um, some praying and then, you know, reading from scripture and then a sort of long sermon, a bit more music and a cup of coffee halfway through and have a break, all that sort of thing. But I felt very comfortable then and the people there were very supportive um, of, of my faith. Obviously, I wasn't... Um, 
a Catholic at that time, but yeah. I was still thinking about that, but I didn't sort of um, speak to them about that. But they were very supportive just of helping me um, know God and to pray and to read scripture and all those basic things which are common to all Christian denominations, I suppose. So uh, they were very supportive, but in terms of um, becoming a Catholic, that really, the greatest support I got from that was in the RCIA process I went through um, uh, at uh, Blacktown Parish. RCIA, what does it stand for? What does it do? Okay, it's another one of those church acronyms that we <laughs> like to use. Um, RCIA stands for the Rite, as in R I T E, of Christian Initiation of Adults. Okay. Yeah. And that is a program that runs in every Catholic church? Uh, well, most of them, yeah, a lot of them do have that sort of process. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, some parishes probably don't have it, but um, many would, yeah. So you have to memorize catechism and pass exam before you become Catholic? Thankfully not, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's <laughs> encouraging. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here now. <laughs> what was this experience of RCIA for you like? Yeah, it was great. It was a very good process. It, it's, um, it's really, I suppose every parish that does it but probably does it in different ways. There might be some that actually do what you just said, Sister Grace, and talk about um, learning you know, parts catechism. of the catechism or yeah. learning Bible verses and all that sort of thing. Um, it's not a necessarily bad thing, but um, mm -hmm. it's really about... I, I found a great process because it was... Uh, when I went through, uh, this is back in 1996, 1997, mm -hmm. when I went through, there was only one other person, I think, or two, maybe two or three others who were, uh, like me, wanting to become Catholics, um, but there was a big team there of, of parishioners from Blacktown Parish. There was a a, um, a Mercy Sister. Okay. And there was a, um, a patrician brother mm -hmm. and uh, three or four parishioners, just lay parishioners from the parish. And basically it was a weekly meeting, I think like a Wednesday evening or something like that. And each week we'd look at a different topic, um, you know, maybe baptism, a different sacraments, mm -hmm. um, scripture, um, nature of the church, um, church social teaching, whatever, all those sort of topics. Uh, but there wasn't any pressure to, um, you know, to, to you know, learn catechism or anything like that. It was really just about helping us to explore uh, what the church is all about, uh, why, and the people who were there were lay people just talking about what they loved about their faith, why yeah. that faith was important to them. So it's about building up those relationships, uh, helping us to pray and deepen our relationship with God. I mean, all the learning we did about the sacraments and church teaching and so on was uh, important, but it wasn't the, the main focus. That's the sort of thing we learned down the track after you become a Catholic. It was really about building up those relationships and um, helping us to feel comfortable, allowing us to ask questions, going along to Mass and having someone there with you. You can ask questions about them, what's going on here, what's going on there, because to an outsider, Mass does look like a very... Um, strange sort of ritual, <laughs> I think. So to be able to ask questions of people without being judged was a, a great thing. So I found that whole thing very supportive and um, I think that was really crucial to my journey. I think if I hadn't gone through that process, um, you know, I may not have become a Catholic or maybe I'd come up, become a Catholic and not really carried on with my faith. Mm -hmm. So those relationships were, were crucial in those early days for me. Yeah. So the be beginning of RCIA wasn't the beginning of your journey with the Catholics because somehow you were already between the people who were from Christian, different Christian denominations, mm. but your search narrowed to the Catholic Church that led mm. you to RCIA. Now, what is at the end of RCIA process? What happens? Well, at the end of the RCA process, well, again, it is a process, and I think it's an important word to use, Sister Grace, because some people call it a program, but it is a process because you can't program God. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know I like saying? that line. Yeah, yeah. so, um, you know, some people just see it as a program, and I understand that because from the outside it probably does look that way, but there's no pressure, 
if I hadn't been ready for baptism, I could have said, look, I don't, you know, I could have got to the day before the baptism or been standing there next to the font and said, look, I'm not really ready yet. That would mm-hmm. have been fine, you know. Um, but uh, so at the end of the process for me um, is was baptism. Um, I'd never been baptised, so mm-hmm. I had to be baptised and I chose to be baptised and um, receiving Eucharist and confirmation or it's baptism, confirmation and Eucharist, which was happened at the Easter Vigil in 1997 for me, so it was the 29th of March. It was a very early Easter mm-hmm. year. I remember the oh, date well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then basically it was for me. It was just about being involved in the parish, coming to mass regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great feeling to finally be a Catholic after all those years of exploring, and I felt really at home. And so I go. I used to go on the mass as often as I could. Yeah. And um, and then I just sort of became part of the parish and just uh, practiced my faith and got involved in things like reading at Mass and uh, mm-hmm. a couple of those sort of other activities which I found really helpful, actually. And I think whenever, whenever people go through RCA, I think it's important that at the end of that they have, as well as just coming to Mass, that they do get involved in the, in the parish in a meaningful way because that really helps people stay on and feel mm-hmm. like they're you know, contributing something to the church, which what people want to do. Yeah. When I first came to Australia, I remember that um, it was a little bit of surprise, uh, a surprise for me how many adults are actually going through this process of preparation for the sacraments as adults. Mm-hmm. And also um, how it changes people's um, intentionality about being Catholics. Mm-hmm. So... I picture you receiving all your sacraments in 1997 mm-hmm. and I would like to know if you remember the feelings that you had as you were entering the Catholic Church in a formal sacramental way. Um, I suppose it was a sense of, well, there's probably mixed feelings. Um, there was an elation there, joy, because mm-hmm. I finally... I suppose it's like someone getting married, you know, you're going out with someone and you go to that relationship and then you know, you're together, but then you've sort of formalised it, as you've put it, um, yeah. in a marriage. And I suppose there's that sense of this is what you've been aiming for and you're finally there. And for me, yeah, at that point at least, um, even though I wasn't, you know, really thinking about priesthood in a great big way, mm-hmm. um, I still, my my aim at that point was simply to become a Catholic and receive the Eucharist and, and come along, be able to go to the Eucharist and, and to worship regularly. So it was a feeling of joy and elation. Um, yeah, and a feeling like, and people often say this, it sounds a little bit like a, a trite thing to say, and a hackney thing to say, but it was like coming home. This is belonging. Right. Belonging, that, exactly. Yeah, right. this yes, was right. the word exactly. I had in my head. <laughs> yeah, belonging, yeah, because I've been going along, because the RCA process took... Um, Eight or nine months, mm-hmm. you know, as, as it tends to, to, to uh, take about that long. So um, so I felt like I was knocking on the door, sort of thing, yeah. going to all these meetings and so on. And then being baptised was like finally having the door opened and being allowed to come into the, the house. In this case, it was the house of God. Um, yeah. but, but a great feeling, yes. So that joy, elation and a bit of relief finally you know, taking that step. Because I had been thinking about getting baptised in a couple of other churches I was mm-hmm. going to, but always got cold feet okay. um, at the end. Um, maybe because I hadn't explored all the options, because I hadn't explored the Catholic Church at that point. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I felt there was no hesitation. I didn't feel there was any apprehension. I didn't feel like, am I doing the right thing? I really felt like I was doing the right thing. And that really affirmed me that this was the right choice for me. So if I will sum up your journey thus far, which you describe, mm-hmm. it's 
very interesting. It's the household that it's actually not the one that will nurture fate. Mm. It's an uh, growing up into your own decisions and becoming a teacher. It's finding fate on your own, in a sense, Mm -hmm. but finding hope in that faith and finding belonging in the Catholic Church. Mm. And then it comes this big decision about priesthood. Was it again a process or was it something sudden in your life? I think it was a process. Um, Well, it was a process because I've been... I mean, it sounds a bit silly to say this, but I think I was thinking about this even before becoming Catholic. Um, It was something I was attracted to uh, even while I was going to other churches. Um, But maybe my understanding of priesthood at that time was very um, simple. Maybe it's just based on things I'd seen in movies or reading books or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, It was obviously not um, a a comprehensive understanding of priesthood. But something I've been thinking about, I suppose it's just seeing seeing it uh, maybe in films, as I said, or whatever, but thinking, well, no, that's a sacrifice there and those guys are doing good work and they're, and they're obviously uh, happy in what they're doing and so on, all that sort of thing. So I think I've been thinking about it, but I really started to take it seriously um, maybe a year or so after becoming a Catholic. I was just thinking about it more seriously. I suppose I was doing some... You know, I was obviously praying at that time and being mm-hmm. part of the church and nourishing my faith in various ways. And, uh, and I suppose at that point I was seeing priests, you know, regularly because I was going to Mass. So, mm-hmm. so I could see them, what they did. Um, so I was trying to think about it and I, I kept on thinking about it and praying about it. Um, and, but then I kept on dismissing the idea from time to time. I think, well, I've only just become a Catholic in a you know, year ago. So um, I'm sure that um, I really need to wait a few more years and think about it a bit more before I make that step. And who else, who knows what's going to happen in my life in other relationships, whatever, anyway. So... I sort of pushed it away, but it kept on coming back to me and back mm-hmm. to me again and again. And, um, and so I was thinking about it more seriously um, and, knowing, and knowing that I didn't have to sort of sign a document straight away to say I'm going to become a priest, I could yeah. explore it. <laughs> yeah. So that was a good thing, of course. So I mentioned to um, the parish priest I sort of got to know by this time. He was the one who baptised me and confirmed me and gave me first Eucharist. I mentioned it to him and uh, he said, well, if that's what you're thinking about, then let's just um, explore it a bit more. And um, so we talked about it a bit. And then he said, well, I'll write a letter to the um, director of formation for the diocese and just introducing you and um, seeing what happens from there. So that's what he did. And what happened from there? How many years do you have to study before you become a priest? Well, it varies. Um, but for me, uh, bearing in mind at this time I was... Um, in my early 30s, I was 30, when I went to the seminary or house of formation, I was um, 30, going on 31 that year. So mm-hmm. um, so I suppose I had a bit of life experience and so on. So the actual number of years I had to, of my formation, including study, was uh, six years. Okay. Uh, so that was from, I began in 19, early 1999 and I uh, was ordained a priest in the middle of 2005, in June 2005. Uh, so that was yeah, six and a bit years. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a, a good process because I was able to, you know, we were able to think about things and um, ask questions and so on uh, during all that time. So it wasn't just academic study, it was also going to parishes, exploring what happens in parishes. There was, you know, uh, spiritual formation and spiritual direction and obviously all those sort of things that are important. Uh, it's not just academic stuff, it's also mm-hmm. the other side of things, the whole formation of the human being. 
uh, to be to able to take on this life. Did you find support of your family in those decisions? Because they were not exactly probably something what your family would expect from you. No, that's true. <laughs> well, it's true. Uh, no, they're very supportive, actually. And I think part of it was, you know, my parents had never pushed me in any particular direction. It wasn't mm-hmm. like they, you know, expected me to be this, that or the other. Um, you know, my parents have um, always been very keen to let me be where I wanted to be. Um, never said, well, you should really explore this option for your life or that option for your life. So uh, there was a great freedom in that, and I really appreciate that now. I can sort of see there was value in not um, saying, well, we expect you to do this with your life or that with your life. So even though it was a surprise, sure, um, they were very keen to support me because they could see I was happy and fulfilled doing this as I sort of went through the seminary. And uh, that was a good thing to do, and they obviously had an understanding of priests, although they weren't Catholics, they could see that Priests were, um, like all religious vocations, were people trying to do good and mm-hmm. bring people to God and uh, help people and uh, all that sort of thing that, that people think about priests. And so it was a, they were happy to support me, yeah. I was very privileged to be able to work with you in one of your first assignments. Actually, it's a parish priest also mm. uh, in Blacktown South at St. Michael's Parish. And from that time, and from any other encounters and um, feedback that I had from people, you have an opinion of being a graced homilist. Is this teacher in you that you do oh. well in preaching? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe they're overestimating my abilities, but <laughs> I, I think I think you're right in a sense because as a teacher, now remembering bearing in mind I taught young children too. I was teaching uh, mainly um, year two children, so it's just seven, eight year olds. Okay. Um, so people might say it's a bit insulting to say that that's good preparation for speaking to adults in church but uh, <laughs> one of the things about teaching children is that, um, that you have to be able to think on your feet very yeah. quickly because children will ask questions uh, and I'm afraid generally to ask questions that might stump you a bit or be a bit um, unexpected whereas you know, when children get older and become teenagers they might be a little more reticent and and not you know, they're a bit more afraid to ask questions that um, might um, set the teacher back. So you're being able to think on your feet and being able to explain things, um, maybe some sort of complex ideas in a simple way to children. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose it's public speaking involved in a sense and discipline and all that sort of thing. So you may be right. Um, maybe that has helped um, helped my uh, ability to preach. Um, but it's also a great privilege to to, um, to preach and a, a difficult thing to do too. And I you know, mm-hmm. try and put some preparation into it and... Um, but the important thing is to connect homilies with people's lives. You know, um, anyone can just yes. explain the faith or read the catechism to people. But um, what people are thirsting for, I think, um, is um, homilies which are, assist them in living out their faith and helping them through difficult times and um, just encouraging them in their life of faith in a society which is becoming more and more secular. So um, mm-hmm. I think people need that encouragement. Um, and having been a teacher, I suppose you're trying to keep kids' attention as well, and they lose attention pretty quickly. So part of mm-hmm. being a good homeless, I suppose, is able being able to keep people's attention and keep on topic and uh, make a make maybe one or two points which can connect with people and allow them to deepen their faith. Mm-hmm. Well, I can assure you that it has been recognised and appreciated by many uh, your ability to do just that what you described. I think also that what is on your side is probably gift and hard work of having an excellent ability in expressing yourself in English. 
people who know our time of collaboration together in the parish know that I use the phrase that Father Robert will unpolish my English, (laughs) 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 which will simply mean that in very gentle and uh, very sensitive way, he would say, Grace, how about we just look through this text and go through it again and maybe try to put the prepositions in the right place, (laughs) which I appreciate. I know, I enjoy doing <laughs> because you know, having English as a second language would always be a challenge for me. Mm. But having someone who, in very gentle and um, very sensitive way, just simply wants you to improve, it's another thing. So for this, thank you, oh, Sister Grace. Your your English is much better than my Polish, <laughs> which is non-existent. <laughs> That's way too funny. So. Okay, we mentioned a couple of parishes when you already served as a priest. So St. Michael's Blacktown South, assistant priest at Our Lady Queen of Peace Grace Thames, mm. Padre Pio Glenmore Park, then of course pastoral director of the Seminary of the Holy Spirit Paramata. So some of those pastoral experiences. Any of these places, would you name any of these places with particular event or experience that will be like really quick and right away in the front of you, some highlights. Well, I think the, um, the one of the parishes you mentioned there was my first parish where I went as a deacon, mm-hmm. stayed on as a priest, and that is Our Lady Queen of Peace at Greystains. Okay, and that was my first parish. As I said, I went there after I was ordained a deacon, which was at the end of two thousand four. So um, I stayed on there as a priest. I was there for um, just over four years. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the first assignment is always crucial. Okay. And, um, and I sometimes say that, you know, a first assignment for a, a newly ordained priest can be a make or break experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, it was a make experience because it was a wonderful parish. I'm sure it still is a wonderful parish, but certainly when I was there um, nearly 20 years ago and I started there, it was a very vibrant parish. Um, it had the big staff. You know, there was a parish priest, Father Jerry Iverson, who sadly died um, yeah. some years ago now. Um, and he was a, a wonderful priest. He was a former rector of the Seminary of Manly and um, a very learned man, but a very pastoral caring man, a great parish priest to have for a, a newly ordained um, priest. Mm-hmm. Very big parish, as I said, uh, big staff and lots of events happening. And there was... The regular funerals, um, weddings all the time, baptisms, baptisms in mass on Sundays, separate baptisms. Um, there was also we had a great youth uh, coordinator there. Um, and there was just lots of things happening all the time. There was a po- uh, sorry, Polish festival, Maltese festival, <laughs> Maltese, yeah, sorry, yes, right. uh, Maltese festival every year, and uh, just lots of things happening and a great spirit there in that parish. Mm-hmm. And it was great for me because I had to learn quickly. You know, I sort of said, you know, Father Jerry said, "Well, your first weekend here, what do the baptisms?" You know, so wow. I had to sort of learn to well, not learn to do baptisms, but I suppose um, read up on the ritual, make sure I did the right thing, and. Uh, but that's a great way to learn, you know. And he was supportive, of course. He didn't say to me, just go off and do it and you know, don't bother me. He was always, his door was always mm-hmm. open. So, and there was a wonderful staff there in the secretary and there's a parish manager and a religious sister working there as well. So it was a great environment and a great place to learn the craft, so to speak, of being yeah. a priest. Um, and there was lots of people to visit in their homes and bring communion to. And there was, you know, there's a big school there as well, two big schools. So... That was a very, um, I think that was a really wonderful, and I'm very grateful that the bishop, uh, Bishop Kevin Manning, who was who was the bishop who ordained me, sent me there, and I think it was a very, um, as far as I'm concerned, a very wise choice because I learned a lot there, and mm-hmm. I sort of carried on. That's influenced my whole priesthood. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Now, 
these great experiences were in the pastoral field were stopped by the period of five years when you actually left this country. Where did you go? (laughs) (laughs) I was asked to go to um, to do some further study Um, and I I wasn't told to go to any particular place but I chose to go to to England, to Mm -hmm. the UK. uh, well, only because there's the, the university I went to there, Durham University, uh, had a, a very good um, program, a very good, um, what's called a Catholic, Centre for Catholic Studies in the university there, which obviously focuses on the Catholic Church. So I chose to go there, and that was in um, September 2015. Mm-hmm. So I left Glenmore Parish and uh, to resign from the parish, uh, which I did, and uh, I went over to England. And... Um, so I was there for a few years, interrupted by COVID, of course, uh, mm-hmm. as this often happens. But I was also yeah. in a parish there, so I was working at the same time. Uh, so it was pretty difficult to do both, um, but, but I struggled on. And, um, and I found that, um, you know, that, that experience was um, a, a, yeah, a meaningful experience for me because it was, um, in a sense, my ancestral homeland of England. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I carried, a British, carried a British passport as well as an Australian one, so I was able to sort of live there and... Uh, Worked in a very small parish mm-hmm. um, up, up near Durham, um, it's in the north part of England, just not far from Newcastle, and uh, a beautiful part of the world. Um, and uh, so I combined my studies in um, sacramental theology um, with um, with working in a parish. So it was a very small parish. It had um, probably 150 people who had come to mass, and um, and it was an old mining uh, old mining village. Uh, of course, the mines have closed some years ago now, and um, but it was still had that influence there. A lot of old Irish Catholics um, who um, and ancestors of Irish people who moved over in the 19th century were living in the parish. That's why there's a strong Catholic um, community there. And um, the weather was terrible a lot of the time, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it was a great, a great experience and uh, to to be there and um, yeah, and learn and work at the same time. Yeah. Learn, work, and explore Europe a little bit. That's true. Yes, because yeah. mm-hmm. you love traveling when you can and when uh, your ministry allows you to. Uh, that was the time also when you were able to even visit my home country oh, yes, right. uh, in <laughs> Poland, which was a great, great uh, time to um, spend together. Mm. Fast forward from 1997 when you became the Catholic to the time when you became a priest in 2005 and now almost 2025, not yet, mm-hmm. but right now you are a dean and the administrator of Paramata Cathedral. What does it mean? Right, well, I suppose a dean is just a fancy name for um, being the, the main priest in the cathedral, so it's <laughs> okay. one of those uh, titles uh, that churches love giving titles and to things, I suppose, which um, often mystify a lot of people, but um, it sounds fancy. <laughs> But um, really, my role there is simply, obviously the bishop can't be there, he's busy doing lots of other things, so my role is to, technically the bishop is a parish priest of the cathedral in, in, in Parramatta, um, but obviously he comes and says mass occasionally, but he's busy doing lots of other wonderful things around the place and busy at meetings and uh, travelling and doing all those things, so my role is essentially to be the bishop's um, representative there as, uh, mm-hmm. as the administrator to run the cathedral um, for him, and uh, and so that title dean is just really what that means. 
Um, but it's, it's a, a great parish, a very different parish to other parishes because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have a, um, a big building, obviously, and it's expensive to maintain, and we have lots of um, masses there with mm-hmm. other clergy, and we regularly have, obviously, um, you know, uh, big days there where clergy gather for ordinations or for other celebrations. You know, we have a hall there as well, which is used by people from the community around the place. We have a shop, little shop there. Uh, in the uh, little building called Murphy House, which is an old um, heritage building there, built in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of things to do there. Um, and ministry is, um, is, in a sense, the same for any other parish too. We obviously celebrate Mass and baptisms and funerals and weddings and so on. But uh, we have um, you know, big, big staff there again because it's a big parish to run. Um, but at the same time, we have, although we have all those sort of big events and things, there's also the normal things that every priest does in every parish. We go and visit the sick, you know, take communion to people in their homes, go off to the hospital, visit people, we go up to the school and talk to the kids and hear their confessions and, and chat with them um, and just celebrate Mass every day. We have two Masses a day, so we have a couple of, other, a couple of priests around to help. So it's um, it's a mixture of um, the same but the different too. Um, the the same but the different. Mm-hmm. We talked about your journey from teaching to preaching and you explained um, beautifully how it helps you in really, you know, being heard by the people who are sitting in the pews. Mm. Is it different to preach to the people of the cathedral parish because this is a special place? Is the cathedral really different than other churches? Um, that's a good question. I think the cathedral is a little bit different in terms of the fact that we have, you have a lot of older parishioners there, like every parish, you know, people have mm-hmm. been there for many, many decades. Um, and we've got a couple of parishioners who were baptised there mm-hmm. <laughs> before it was a cathedral when it was, not, it was just a, a parish church, so to speak. Um, and they're still there today. But at the same time, you have quite a few people who are moving through. They might have come from overseas. Uh, they're living in Parramatta because it's, yeah. it's a good place to live, obviously, um, and that's where they've chosen to live. But they might be there for a few months or a year or two, then move on somewhere else. So they're living in mm-hmm. Parramatta. They're renting in Parramatta because these days, you know, in Sydney, of course, with the price of the houses, there are a lot of flats and units around Parramatta, as there are throughout our diocese. So we do see sort of transient population to some extent of people who are moving through. Many come from all parts of the world, I suppose, many from the Philippines and from India um, and maybe a few from, from Europe and so on. And they come through and they're, they're Catholic and they're great for whatever cathedral, but then they might move on somewhere else afterwards. So there's a, a bit of that stability, but also um, a bit of transient, transient population as well. So, and we still have, obviously, um, you know, age ranges and so on of people, young people, and some great families in the parish as well. Mm-hmm. So it is a very mixed um, group of people, but that probably ref- is reflected in many parishes in the diocese, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Diocese of Parramatta, it's very multicultural, and mm. I guess that's what we can see, you know, from Blue Mountains up to the river. <laughs> yes, that's right, exactly. Yes, so exactly. that's probably what is happening. Yeah. I have learned a few things that I didn't know about you. And I hope that people who are listening to our chat uh, also learn that there are some gems to reflect on and some things to consider when people might be considering priesthood or religious life. Take the plunge whenever time it's right for you and never stop searching because I consider you, Father Robert, as a person who 
always strive for the best. <laughs> and I hope that um, people hear this. But this is my take on what I heard. Is there any last message from you before we will wrap up this conversation? Uh, well, I hadn't really um, thought about having a final message, but I suppose <laughs> um, in terms of my, my faith, I think it's, I would say that, yes, uh, you know when you've made the right choice. One of the things I like is that whole, I think it's a Jesuit thing about um, you know, feeling consolation when you've made a decision in accordance mm -hmm. with God's will. Um, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And I haven't found priesthood always easy. Um, I suppose in our conversation, I've spoken about um, you know, very positive things. But of course, like any vocation, any job, yeah. there are struggles from time to time. And there can be struggles with loneliness, um, struggles uh, just in relationships with other people, mm -hmm. um, in private life or in the parish. Uh, every priest uh, has their struggles of one type or another. But at the same time, that shouldn't discourage us because I think people often say, oh, it must be, you must be really hard being a priest. And I say, well, at the same time, if I speak to a married person, I say, well, your marriage must be hard at times too. Exactly. You know? every, every vocation has its struggles. In married couples, um, sometimes some of the loneliest people I've met are people in marriages, you know, and they yeah. come and talk to you and um, they talk about their, their loneliness. So I would say, yeah, as I think you said, take the plunge. I think that's very true. I think we're going to go into any vocation, anything that we believe is God is calling us to, we shouldn't do it half-heartedly. Yeah. We should do it with a real passion and, um, and not look back and uh, understand that, yes, okay, I'm going into this, this is what I feel God wants for me, I'm going to do it passionately and with my whole heart, but not to be discouraged when difficulties and struggles arise because, I mean, look at the life of Jesus. Well, uh, he did everything he did passionately, mm -hmm. including his passion. Yeah. Uh, but that was struggling in itself. So that's probably my final message would be, uh, yeah, do things passionately for God. And um, if there's struggles, if things don't work out, well, that's, that's okay. Keep on trying. Mm. Keep on trying. And if you would like to hear more of a great homilies of Father Robert, then go to the Cathedral for the Mass. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I am very, very grateful that you so generously shared your story. Um, and that you spend this time to talk to me and talk to everyone who is listening to us. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Mr. Grace. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will tune in again. Please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave your review. Feel welcome to visit my website, seekinggodsgrace.com and follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again. Every blessing to you and your loved ones. Talk again soon.